Today's podcast is brought to you by Hemonk.org. Hemonk.org's easy-to-use platform updated by disease-specific specialists from across the country is your perfect pocket reference for all of your chemotherapy-related questions. Best part, it's free. Check out Hemonk.org today. That's H-E-M-O-N-C dot O-R-G. Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rolo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue on our breast cancer journey, this time talking all about breast cancer pharmacology. And in today's episode, we once again welcome a special guest joining us. This is Dr. Danielle Roman. She's an oncology clinical pharmacy specialist at West Penn Allegheny Oncology Network in Pennsylvania. And we're so excited to be speaking with her today about her experiences taking care of patients with breast cancer. I always love our pharmacy episodes because we get a little bit of the nuances that we don't think a lot about or all the time as medical oncologists or nurse practitioners or if you're in training or a pharmacy student. So really looking forward to this episode. And we really try to provide a little framework for our upcoming really digging deep into the content episodes for like we did in multiple myeloma. No specialty teaches you about the importance of your clinical pharmacist more than oncology. I I really believe that. And I'm so excited for this episode. All right, guys. So without further ado, let's go ahead and roll that show. Guys, we're so excited to have another special guest in our breast cancer series. This time we welcome Dr. Danielle Roman, who is an oncology clinical pharmacy specialist at West Penn Allegheny Oncology Network up in Pennsylvania. Danielle, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Danielle, we always, you know, really love our conversations with with our pharmacists. These are conversations that we often are not a part of as as fellows and as the clinicians, but these are such an important part of the care of our of our patients with cancer and most definitely our breast cancer patients. And so, you know, we're really looking forward to hearing all of your pearls and how you talk about all of this with your patients so that, you know, we can also be a part of the educational journey for our patients. In classic the fellow on call fact, though, if you don't mind telling us a few words about yourself, and then we love asking our guests a fun fact as well. Yeah, so I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I've been working for my current institution, so that the parent company's Allegheny Health Network. Been here for a lot of years now, so my role has transitioned a bit over time. But I'm currently clinical pharmacy manager, and then I practice in a community setting. So I'm seeing lots of different tumor types, breast cancer included but always keeps me on my toes. And I like that part of my job. And in terms of fun fact, so I am the oldest of six kids. So I come from a really big family. I guess probably people would say maybe I'm the bossy one <laughs> being the oldest child, but it makes a lot of fun. And my my younger siblings, my younger sisters are 14 and 16 years younger than I am. So when we get together, like we did recently for the Easter holiday, it's just, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's incredible. My brother's eight years older than me, and he always tells me, you know, where do you think you got your personality from? You know, it's, it's, it, you, somebody has to pave the way and, and break the parents in and all that other stuff, too. I was that one. So <laughs> they all have me to thank. <laughs> all right. So I'm just going to go ahead and kick us off with our first case. So let's say we have a 33-year-old female with a 3.5 centimeter ERPR positive, HER2 negative, invasive ductal carcinoma who underwent lumpectomy and sentinel lymph node biopsy. 
Her sentinel lymph node biopsy was negative for nodal involvement. Her oncotype DX score was 18. She completed her planned radiation therapy and now comes to Medical Oncology Clinic to discuss the risk-benefit of adjuvant hormonal therapy with ovarian suppression and endocrine therapy versus chemotherapy followed by ovarian suppression and endocrine therapy. So we're just kind of using this case as sort of a jumping-off point. Many times we have these women who just end up getting chemotherapy, but we just wanted to use this case for some discussion points on the pharmacologic management of these patients. So let's start with the endocrine therapy portion for, for patients like this. So when we think of patients, we, we identify them as premenopausal or postmenopausal. And for our listeners, for patients who are less than 60, menopause is defined by amenorrhea for a year or more, as well as, in many cases, getting an FSH and an estradiol that's in the postmenopausal range. For women that are 60 or older, we kind of just assume that they're in menopause. So that's how we make our distinction of premenopausal versus postmenopausal. And we think of that at the time of diagnosis. So it's really important that that's how we're defining these women. So our whole goal here is to decrease estrogen exposure to breast cancer cells if these cells are dependent on this estrogen pathway. So for this patient, let's say we had a plan for ovarian suppression with luprolide and tamoxifen. And for our listeners, remember that tamoxifen is a selective estrogen receptor modulator or SERM medication that you might see. So let's start off with the luprolide. So can you tell us how the GnRH agonist causes ovarian suppression and the frequency of dosing that you see with this? And then how do you as the pharmacist think about counseling patients when they're getting something like luprolide? Yeah, so we talk about GnRH agonists or another term you hear a lot is the LHRH agonist. So same thing there with medications. So here we're talking about drugs that are agonists of the pathway. So you have the hypothalamus that's releasing LHRH, is stim- stimulating the pituitary, releasing the, the FSH and LH, and then ultimately that's stimulating the ovaries to re- release estradiol. So what you have here is you actually have drugs that are agonists of this pathway, so agonists of that LHRH or GNRH. So you see them actually initially cause a surge of FSH and LH and a surge of, of estrogen resulting from that. But ultimately, what we're looking for here is you get negative feedback of this. So once you get that kind of initial surge, you actually are getting negative feedback through that pathway, which is what we're looking for. It's going to shut down ovarian production of estrogen. That's ultimately what we're looking to do here. That doesn't happen initially. It you know sometimes takes some somewhere in a week to two weeks. Um, you get a little bit of that initial surge and then the shutdown of that pathway. So with that, in terms of dosing conversations here. So we're really talking in breast cancer, we're really talking usually about two medications that are that have this action or the GnRH agonist. Um, so predominantly that's going to be luprolide in the form of Lupron. Um, and then we have our second agent of Gaserlin, brand name Zolidex. So I think one of the tough things with these agents is that we're using them in other disease states too, like prostate cancer. And there are some differences here. There's a lot of different formulations out there, but we're really going to focus on Lupron and then Zolidex from the breast cancer standpoint. Um, And there's some key differences between those two. So if we look at Luprolide in the form of Lupron, this is going to be an IM injection. The dosing can be either every 28 days or there is a three-month depot formulation of Lupron that can be used. 
I think one of the key things here too is that the dosing of Lupron is different from the prostate cancer dosing. So it's going to be lower dosing that we're using in breast cancer. So typically the 3.75 milligrams, that's the every 28 day dosing. And then 11.25 milligrams is the every three month depot dosing. That's kind of the two formulations that we can see used for Lupron. And then the other agent is the Gacerlin or Zolidex. A big difference with this one is that we're talking about sub-Q injection. So it's actually an implant that is sub-Q administration into the abdomen. So it's a really small, almost pellet-like implant that is placed in the abdomen. And that is an every 28-day dosing. So for that one in particular, it's really we're really kind of limited in our dosing and our schedule here. I think in other countries, there might be some longer formulations available, but in the US right now, we just have the the every 28 day dosing. It makes a lot of sense. So that's really interesting because I see a lot of times that sometimes we reach for that Lupron because we can do an every three month dosing for it rather than thinking about coming back once a month for these women who, who will be on hormonal therapy for several years. And so I want to talk a little bit more about side effects, and I think this goes well with tamoxifen as well. So tamoxifen being the selective estrogen receptor modulator, meaning it's got agonist activity in some tissues and antagonist activity in others. So we have in the breast, it's got an antagonist activity and the uterus has an agonist activity in the bones. We have more of an agonist activity. So, you know, when we think about something like tamoxifen, that's what we see. But for you, when when we're thinking about side effects and from you as a pharmacist, what should we think about side effect profile wise for these medications? You're really thinking about menopausal-like symptoms as kind of the big one that we see for a lot of our patients. So with a lot of these hormonal or medications that are blocking hormonal stimulation in the body, we're going to see patients have a lot of the traditional menopause symptoms. So hot flashes being a big one here. Patients can have vaginal discharge or vaginal dryness. With tamoxifen, you can have patients that have irregular menses. So it doesn't necessarily cause cessation of menses, but patients can notice an irregularity of that. Sometimes night sweats. We can also see hyperlipidemia with this drug. So it is an agonist in the lipids. So it's just something that to pay attention to with this agent. Sometimes we can see that. But the hot flashes here can be pretty debilitating for patients. It tends to be menopausal symptoms that are more severe than what you would see in a natural menopause state. So those are the, the more common things to pay attention to. And then, of course, with everything, there's some rare effects, but really important ones to pick out um, with this agent that even though they're rare, we, we want to counsel patients and watch for those. So one of those is VTE, so DVT and PE. Not something we see commonly in our patients, but um, definitely a, an important counseling point and talking to patients about avoiding prolonged periods of immobil- immobility, things that are going to further increase that risk. Another thing to pay attention to is the risk of uterine cancer with this agent. So we know because it does have agonist activity in the endometrium that this is a rare side effect. It is something that we are generally more concerned about in a postmenopausal woman. And you think about these agents, a lot of times we are using them in a premenopausal patient population. So this side, the side effect of uterine cancer isn't as great of a concern in that patient population as we think about it in the postmenopausal patient. Um, so in terms of that, just talking, it's a scary side effect to mention to patients when you're talking about using this to treat cancer and then the fact that it can cause another type of cancer. Um, but it is, I think, counseling that it is rare, 
but to make sure that patients are having regular gynecologic follow-up and reporting abnormal vaginal, vaginal bleeding. It's just something we want to make sure that we include as part of that counseling point. And then a little bit just to mention with bone loss. So this is another side effect that kind of depends on menopausal status. It's something that we tend to be a little bit more concerned about the bone loss with this agent in a premenopausal um, patient. It tends to actually be bone protective in postmenopausal patients. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's something I found fascinating, right? Because that's, again, this differential effect on, on different types of estrogen receptor. If you do have a patient who's really debilitated by these sort of more classic vasomotor symptoms of, of menopause, what kind of things are in the armamentarium? What can we offer them to sort of help work, help them work through that? Yes, I think we can. We certainly have pharmacologic approaches, and then we do have some non-pharmacologic approaches that have been helpful. Um, so in terms of medication-wise, a couple things for, I would say to avoid. So typically in a non-breast cancer patient, when they have menopausal symptom, symptoms, you might be talking about hormonal type supplementation. So that's not something we want to do here, obviously. Um, and I think along with that, I, I tend to um, make sure that patients are avoiding even like the herbal supplements that might have, because there's a lot of them on the market that could be treating those symptoms. But the concern with some of those is they do contain phytoestrogens or plant-based estrogens. So wanting to avoid anything like that. In terms of what we can use, I think the some of the most well-studied options would be in that antidepressant category of medication. So venlafaxine is an example of that. It's considered a preferred option and guidelines for treatment. And then some of the other agents that have been studied are some of the other antidepressant options. So things like citalopram, escitalopram, paroxetine, fluoxetine, sertraline. So there is some data to support all of those, um, usually starting low dose and titrating up to effect. There's actually some data with gabapentin and using it for hot flashes. And then rarely think we can reach for things like clonidine if we need to, but we tend to try to first go with that antidepressant category. So an SSRI or an SNRI. Um, and then in terms of the non-pharmacologic treatment approaches, which can be really helpful in some patients. So things like acupuncture, increasing uh, physical activity, potentially things like yoga, um, and sometimes using those in combination with some of our pharmacologic options are helpful. You mentioned, obviously, not wanting to give exogenous estrogens while someone's on tamoxifen. Are there other drugs that are known to have like strong interactions with tamoxifen that we should avoid in these patients? Yeah, so tamoxifen is definitely one of those that I'm always teaching any pharmacy students or residents that I'm working with. Is this is actually there are some interactions here that you really should question. Um, a lot of times when we run interaction screens, we get tons of different interactions, but this is actually one to pay attention to with tamoxifen. So here the the concern is that you have tamoxifen that needs to be converted to an active metabolite of endoxifen, and that is done by, by CYP2D6. So any agents that are, especially the strong inhibitors of 2D6, but really even some of the moderate ones are going to be best to avoid just because of that concern that you're not going to be getting that conversion to the active metabolite of the drug. So some good examples are actually drugs that I just mentioned could be good to treat hot flashes. So things like fluoxetine, paroxetine, bupropion. So those SSRIs or SNRIs, those particular ones are definitely ones that we tend to stay away from because they have more of that strong inhibitory concern. There are some ones that aren't as 
major concerns. So citalopram, venlafaxine, escitalopram, and sertraline. So your Selexas, your Zoloft, your Effexors tend to be have very minimal impact on that. So those are ones that you can safely use with tamoxifen. That's really good to know. We'll have to make sure that we highlight that in our show notes for sure. That's I, I had no idea that there was significant interaction of those drugs with tamoxifen. Now, Danielle, let's say we switched the case a little bit and our patient was given ovarian suppression and letrozole, which is an aromatase inhibitor instead of a serum. So you know, what I want to know and what I'm curious to learn is what are the key differences between the side effects of a serum and an AI? And then, you know, are there any big drug interactions here that we need to worry about? With the AI class, a lot of similarities. So those menopausal symptoms in terms of the similarities, the differences would be that we don't see the same concerns for DBT and the uterine cancer concerns. AIs have some additive concerns though. So bone loss here in, so this is particularly in that postmenopausal patient populations where we're generally using these. So definitely a concern for bone loss and something that we monitor for in these patients baseline and then periodically throughout treatment. So at least every couple of years monitoring a DEXA scan. And then the other big one here that's a big difference is that we do see quite a bit of arthralgia and myalgia with the AI class. Um, This can be up to 50% of patients, usually about six weeks or so after the initiation of of treatment is when when we see it and can worsen over that first year of treatment, can be really debilitating for some patients. Seems like those patients that have some baseline joint issues tend to be the patients that kind of have exacerbated. That's not always the case, but that is a risk factor I've definitely seen play out in practice in terms of those patients that tend to develop more of the side effect and can be sometimes a difficult one to treat. So we can use things like, so some of the agents we talked about before, so there's some data with using duloxetine or Cymbalta here, acupuncture potentially, exercise can help. The other thing that we can do is trying an alternate AI. So sometimes you start with one AI, the patients develop really debilitating arthralgia myalgia. Sometimes switching to another AI doesn't always fix things, but it sometimes can be helpful for certain patients. Yeah, that's great. And and I know that I've seen that in clinic where we will switch between AIs. And if they can't, you know, we try to do things where you can do a couple years of tamoxifen, a couple years of AI, you know, try to, and we'll, we'll talk a lot about those in our, in our upcoming episodes. So I want to go back to our patient with this ERPR positive, HER2 negative 3.5 centimeter tumor. Oncotype again was 18. Let's say we talk to the patient. We know we can get, based on that Taylor RX study, we can get a few percentage points improvement in invasive disease-free survival with chemotherapy. And we were talking about TC times four. So this is something that we'll see a lot in adjuvant breast cancer for hormone-positive patients. This is given Q21-day cycles. It, it's docetaxel and cyclophosphamide. One of the biggest questions, so we, we've talked about general chemotherapy side effects in previous episodes, but one of the biggest questions that we get from women who have to undergo a surgical lumpectomy or mastectomy, and now we tell them that, hey, alopecia is part of this regimen. One question I had is, do some patients actually keep their hair with this regimen? And the second question is, I see things about scalp cooling devices, and I know this, there's little data behind this, but just curious your thoughts from the pharmacy perspective on something like that and this idea of alopecia. 
Yeah. So in terms of uh, keeping your hair during TC, so I would say virtually no patients keep their hair during TC. So unfortunately, we're we're kind of we're getting the um, effects of the taxanes, which are well known to cause alopecia, and the cyclophosphamide, which has that adverse effect. So it's common. I have yet to see a patient that's able to keep their hair with this particular regimen. Usually, something you know we're seeing about two weeks into that first cycle is when you see the most kind of the bulk of the hair loss at that point. Usually reversible, so at least from patient counseling standpoint, and hair does. T- tend to come back for almost all patients, um, might come back a different color, different texture. And it's usually total body alopecia that you can see with the taxane. So in particular with this regimen, so um, not just the hair on their head, but eyebrows, eyelashes, uh, all of that. Scalp cooling definitely is something that I think is gaining even more knowledge around it and, and from a provider and a patient perspective, something that we're starting to see a little bit more in practice. Um, so it is a potentially a way for patients to prevent the side effect of alopecia. So I know that there are a number of different systems out there that can be used for this. So kind of the rudimentary initially was using ice to do it. Now there's a lot of ability to use chemicals that cause cold producing when they're activated. So a lot of times this is done through a cooling cap that is worn for specific periods of time. And I do think there's some variability in the amount of time that patients have to wear it depending on which system they're using. But it usually is wearing the cap for some period of time before the treatment starts. Um, so on the day of treatment, they come in, they've had the cap on for a little while before treatment starts, keep it on throughout the duration of the infusion, and then for a period of time after. So I know one of the cooling caps that that I've seen used in practice where I'm at, I think it's a, a one to three hour period of time after the infusion completes. So it definitely kind of adds to the day and what's going on for the patient, but some opportunities there. And the thought behind it is just really that you're causing, you know, vasoconstriction, less chemotherapy exposure with the hair follicles and kind of slowing down the hair follicle activation, you know, hopefully just being able to retain some of their hair. I think with some of this, it may be difficult to kind of have no alopecia, even with the use of scalp cooling, but may be able to really significantly decrease the amount of hair loss um, and maybe have more of just a thinning versus complete loss. Yeah. And, you know, another thing I think about with the taxanes, uh, in addition to, you know, classically causing hair loss is, is neuropathy. If you were to start to see some neuropathy in this patient, would you consider a dose reduction? Like what's your threshold for requiring somebody to reduce their dose? There may not be, you know, a define correct answer here, but I'm curious to hear your approach. Yeah, I think this is a really tough one in practice because it's something we see quite a bit. And especially in this patient case where you have someone who's curative intent, you're trying to get through treatment, you're trying to kind of power through as much as you can with dose intensity and dose density. But I think, you know, usually when we're getting to the point where the neuropathy is really limiting, definitely when it's limiting self-care activity. So if they're really having trouble with walking, dressing themselves, you know, like the, those kind of the basic activities is really when we need to talk about a dose reduction, sometimes a little bit earlier than that, but usually we really we try to power through as much as possible. I think with the taxanes, one of the good things with neuropathy is we do know that it is typically reversible. So if you're able to get patients through treatment, it does take, can take months to reverse, but usually is completely reversible. But I would say usually when we're kind of getting into that 
definitely by a grade three, sometimes even in a grade two, where we're talking about some degree, usually a 20% dose reduction. Do either of you have trouble remembering the nuances of all of these chemotherapy regimens? You know, Rona, I don't have that problem. And you know why? It's not because I know everything, but it's because of hamoc.org. And anytime I see a new patient that I'm about to start chemotherapy, I go to this website. It's free, easy to use, evidence-based. It's my go-to anytime I start my patients because it gives me the dosing schedule and all of the up-to-date information. Yeah, I'm a big fan too. I use it today in clinic, in fact. Not only do they break down the regimens by disease subtype, but they also provide links to those original articles that led to the approval of the therapies listed. Since these pages are updated constantly by disease-specific experts, you'll always be up-to-date on the latest regimens and dosing schedules. It's a great supplement to our fellow on-call website. Learn more about hemonc.org by visiting their website. That's H-E-M-O-N-C dot O-R-G. I wanted to present another case to you then just to kind of give another scenario. And I'm just really enjoying this conversation. So this time, Danielle, we have a 48-year-old female with a breast lump that underwent diagnostic mammogram showing a 4.2 centimeter spiculated mass in the left breast. She had a palpable, movable axillary lymphadenopathy. And then she had an ultrasound guided core biopsy, which was consistent with triple negative breast cancer in both the primary mass and the lymph node as well. And so we plan to initiate what we call neoadjuvant chemoimmunotherapy. So before this pivotal Keynote 522 trial that led to the use of chemo-IO, these patients would often get neoadjuvant dose-dense ACT. And so I want to talk a little bit about this. I've seen the term dose-dense used before, and I'm curious, what does dose-dense mean in the context of of this regimen? Yeah, so here we talk about giving do- uh, AC or doxorubicin cyclophosphamide in a dose-dense manner, which we're talking about exactly that. So giving it those doses closer together. So the doses are actually the same, whether you give it dose-dense or kind of the traditional every three week, but you're giving shorter intervals between treatments when you give it in a dose-dense way, which is an every two-week regimen compared to the standard, which was the every three-week regimen. So one of the things you definitely have to think about when you're giving a dose dense is you need to give that patient growth factor. So they're not getting as much time for count recovery in between cycles. One of those limiting factors is neutropenia. So it's unlikely if you give give it in a dose dense fashion that patients' neutrophils will have recovered to an adequate level to give that next cycle once you get to that two-week point. So they really need to have that prophylactic growth factor up front to try to be able to continue that in a dose dense fashion. So then by the same virtue, then would you expect things like nausea, which I suspect based on this regimen to be pretty severe, would you also say that those symptoms are more severe? And if so, what sorts of antiemetic agents are you considering using in these patients to minimize that? From my experience, I don't see that that notice that nausea is more severe with dose dense versus the every three week regimen, but AC is definitely one where it's highly emetogenic. Without adequate prophylaxis, most patients are going to have a significant issue with nausea and vomiting here. So we treat it pretty aggressively. So we pretty much give all of our antiemetic drugs that we can as prophylaxis up front. So you definitely want patients to be getting a 5-HT3 antagonist. They should be getting steroid with dexamethasone, a neurokinin-1 antagonist, so something like prepotent, fosaprepotent, one of those agents. So at least those three are generally standard. 
Sometimes we will add in olanzapine. So that is another option. So kind of making it a four drug prophylactic regimen. So I actually have a patient that is starting this regimen tomorrow. So we just talking about her history. She has a significant history of having a lot of issues with nausea vomiting in the past with pregnancy, motion sickness, surgery. She's just had a lot of issues. And so we did elect to add olanzapine in for her to just try to be as aggressive up front as possible and preventing it. So doing all of that in the preventative setting for acute and then making sure that they have prophylaxis on board for delayed nausea vomiting, because that can be a big issue here as well. So not just in that close proximity to treatment, but you can really have that lingering issues with nausea that can last for days to a week out from treatment. A lot of times here, we want to do at least some delayed dexamethasone. So something like eight milligrams for three days after treatment to try to prevent that. One of the things I love to hear what you just said is that we are talking to our patients, asking them, have you had issues with nausea before? And I think that's really important as we think about how to tailor our anti-emetic regimens for our patients, because right now in 2023, our goal is to prevent all of this, not for the patient to be nauseous and vomiting. If that's the case, then we need to do better. And I I really like that. And I'm definitely going to internalize that. And I hope all of our listeners start to ask their patients that simple question, which I think can go a long way for them. There's a lot that we can do up front. So our goal is to prevent it. We are not always great about doing that and have to react in the moment. But I think that there's a lot that we can do up front especially not so much this patient, but patients that have had prior history with chemotherapy and just really taking, you know, understanding from that past experience and trying to adjust their anti-emetic regimen the next time around. Now, Danielle, as I mentioned, in our case, we are going to be employing the data from that Keynote 522 trial. And so we will be planning in this patient scenario to do TCAC plus Pembro. So that's carboplatin, paclitaxel, pembrolizumab, times 12 weeks, followed by doxorubicin, cyclophosphamide, and Pembro times 12 weeks to complete the neoadjuvant therapy, which is going to be before surgery. So on a practical level, how often are these patients having to come to the infusion room? Yeah, so there's a lot here. There's a lot of drugs we're talking about. So we kind of think about this in terms of the neoadjuvant part of it as two phases. So that first phase is when they're getting their taxane, the carboplatin, and the pembrolizumab. So in that phase, they're generally coming in weekly for this. So we are having, I tend to, the keynote 522 trial actually looked at two different ways of giving carboplatin. So they actually did an every three-week carboplatin, or they did the weekly carboplatin. I find the weekly carboplatin to be much better tolerated by patients. So, So they're coming in weekly for this treatment for the 12 weeks. And then beyond that, that second phase, so really that the, the AC treatment that we've been talking about in pembrolizumab, here they're usually coming in. So every three weeks for treatment, so that the Keynote 522 did not do dose-dense AC. So, so they're coming in every three weeks for the treatment, but we have them often coming in a little bit more frequently for that. So we definitely want to check their labs regularly. Sometimes we need to do some hydration or other supportive care in between, but it is a a pretty intensive regimen in terms of commitment from patients. Yeah. You know, I love to think about that in two phases. I think that's going to really help our listeners and and help us as, as oncologists and as fellows, you know, to really understand that it's easy to break this down if you think about it as two separate phases. And weekly carbotaxel is something that's easy for us to know, hey, that's something we do a lot in solid tumor malignancies. And I, I really like that. But I think we need to move on to our next case of, of a HER2 case. Dan, do you want to present that case? 
Sure thing. Yeah. So we have a 38 year old lady. She's got her two positive breast cancer. It's a T2N1 tumor. And we're planning to start her on neoadjuvant therapy with TCHP. This is actually the first regimen I ever used to, to treat breast cancer uh, when I was a early on in my fellowship. These patients get docetaxel, carboplatin, and a combination of HER2-directed therapies, both trastuzumab or Herceptin and pertuzumab or Pergetta. When we think about adding HNP together, Herceptin and Pergetta at the same time, what side effects do you generally find? Is there like a multiplicative effect in terms of side effects in addition to the sort of therapeutic effect we see? These medications I find to be very well tolerated. And I think that's pretty much what we've, we've seen across the board is that trastuzumab and pertuzumab don't tend to add a lot of toxicity to the regimen. I think the, the couple things with these things to, to definitely think about is they are potentially cardiotoxic. I think the concern initially, so we knew that trastuzumab it's cardiotoxic. So of all the HER2 targeting agents, it's the most cardiotoxic one. And the concern with adding pertuzumab here was that you're going to get additive cardiotoxicity. And that's really not what was seen in the clinical trial. So, but we know that each agent does have cardiotoxic effects. So definitely something we want to monitor for. There is the concern for infusion-related reactions. So with monoclonal antibodies, we see that a lot. I in practice, actually, I really don't see a lot of infusion reactions with these to the extent that we see it with some other monoclonal antibodies, but definitely have seen it. So it's something we don't necessarily pre-medicate or do anything different other than that first infusion does tend to be a longer infusion for most patients. And if they tolerate it, we can give it in shorter time intervals. Other than that, a lot of the other side effects are reported out there, but pretty rare. I think the only other one I would mention um, with pertuzumab in particular is we do see more diarrhea with that agent than we do with trastuzumab. So that is something in particular in, in your patient case where they're getting TCHP. So it can see significant diarrhea from the cytotoxic agents as well. So pertuzumab does seem to kind of add to that. And so if somebody's having like really severe diarrhea, would that tend to make you want to hold pertuzumab? Is there ever a situation where you're holding pertuzumab and kind of keeping the Herceptin on board? Yeah. So that's probably one of the only situations where I've seen that be the case where we've kept on the trastuzumab and dropped the pertuzumab. I mean, it can't, it's often difficult to figure out because within that regimen, there are multiple agents that can be causing diarrhea, but tend to, you know, if we can't symptomatically manage it and we need to look at some adjustments to the regimen, one of the first things that we have done is drop pertuzumab. So you wouldn't ever dose reduce pertuzumab, but we would just drop it from the regimen to see if we can get improvement with that before dose reducing the cytotoxic components. So there's a couple of different approaches you could take here, but I have done that before and had some success with that. It makes complete sense, and we'll we'll talk about this in our future episodes. The adding that pertuzumab, we're looking for increased pathologic CR rates, particularly in node positive patients. But dropping it isn't the end of the world if patients are suffering from severe toxicity. One other thing that we mentioned was the cardiotoxicity, and often we get an echo at baseline, and then every three months, you know, look, depending on institution and guidelines. But I'm curious for our patient, I want to talk about a different class of drugs here. So let's say that she got TCHP times four cycles, followed by surgery, and had residual disease found at the time of surgery. We have data for the use of an antibody drug conjugate, trastuzumab, emtansine, also known as TDM1 or CADSILA, to improve invasive disease-free survival for these patients who did not get a pathologic CR at the time of surgery. 
Can you talk about the mechanism of action of this antibody drug conjugate? And how should we think about the potency? Because there's a lot of different antibody drug conjugates out there. How, from a pharmacologic perspective, can we think about potency of these drugs? Yeah, so I think that there's been a lot with these drugs, especially recently in breast cancer. I'm seeing definitely an increased use of antibody drug conjugates. So with these agents, there's really three components. You have the actual antibody part. You have the linker that's joining the antibody to that third part, which is kind of the payload or the cytotoxic component. So the benefit of these agents is you get targeted approach. You have the antibody that's targeting. In this case, we're targeting HER2. And that you can deliver a really potent cytotoxic agent that you may not have been otherwise able to give unless you're really directing it to the cells that it needs to go to. So that's kind of the benefit here is you can really get potent activity and you can really target it in that way. So you mentioned trastuzumab and tansine. So here the, the antibody is trastuzumab. So it's targeting the HER2 receptors or cells that are overexpressing HER2. The payload here, the cytotoxic component is emtansine, which is inhibiting microtubule assembly. So it's kind of, you can kind of think of it as like a vinca alkaloid like drug. So that's kind of the, the overall thought behind this agent and, and kind of the components of, of treatment. Yeah, that's great to know that we have these targeted drug delivery mechanisms that are allow, allowing us to use very potent chemotherapeutic agents for these patients that's targeted to their cancer cells, maybe has a bystander effect if there's heterogeneity in the tumor, that they're still delivering that payload to the area. And we just wanted to mention that another medicine that you'll see is trastuzumab deruxtecan, which is also known as Inhertu, and that's a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor that's linked to it. So just something that you'll see. We'll talk about that more in our Hertu-directed episodes. But Ronick, do you want to finish us off with our last case? Yeah, Absolutely. For our last case, we have a 62-year-old female with metastatic ERPR-positive breast cancer that has spread to her bones and her liver. And so we're planning on starting this patient on a CDK4-6 inhibitor and letrozole. So, Danielle, can you briefly explain to us what the CDK4-6 inhibitors are and what is the mechanism of this drug class? Yeah, so we have three agents in this class. So we have the first, the first agent is calbacyclib, um, and that was followed by approvals of ribocyclib and abemacyclib. So these are agents that are inhibiting CDK4-6. So we know that with CDK4-6, it binds to cyclin D1, and this is ultimately causing activation of the retinoblastoma protein that is causing cells to be able to progress through the cell cycle. So it's kind of like you're keeping your foot on the gas and that you're being able to continue to have these cells reproduce. Whereas when we have a CDK4-6 inhibitor, it's blocking that interaction. So it's really arresting the cell cycle at the G0, G1 phase. So it's not cytotoxic in the same way as some of the chemotherapy we're talking about, but it's actually a cytostatic agent. It's just kind of shutting down that cell cycle progression. These drugs have a decent number of side effects that we often learn about. And so with pabocyclib, we think a lot more about neutropenia. In my mind, it's maybe one of the less effective drugs. We have ribocyclib, as you said, that requires, that's QT prolonging. And so QT prolongation monitoring is important. And then abemacyclib, which we can also use in the adjuvant setting, which our listeners will also hear about in future episodes. The big side effect we hear about this is, is diarrhea. And so I'm just curious, what is your approach to helping patients manage diarrhea associated with abemacyclib? Yeah, it's really common. Upwards of 75% of patients seeing clinical trials had some degree of diarrhea. 
usually something that's a pretty quick onset. So usually within that first week of treatment is when you're going to see patients develop the side effect. And it's typically low grade and manageable with antidiarrheals with something like loperamide, talking to patients about increasing hydration, dietary choices. You can consider dose reduction. So that's certainly something for certain patients that we might consider, particularly if it gets to the point where they're like a grade two, which would be four to six stools over baseline as a point where you would want to consider a dose reduction. But interestingly with this drug, usually longer time on the drug, that adverse effect tends to subside or improve over time. So you might see it early on and then hopefully it's going to, with appropriate management, will then improve over time. So be aggressive about it and then also provide just supportive counseling as well that if if our patients are able to get through it, hopefully there should be light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. So don't necessarily have to do kind of a prophylactic approach. Not all patients will develop it, although it is really common, but you certainly would want patients to have loperamide at home, be counseled about when to start taking it and, and reporting really significant diarrhea back to us. So let's say this patient ended up doing really well on letrozole and abemacyclib for six years, but at that point had progression of their disease. We rebiopsy the progressive lesion and it shows a ESR1 mutation has been acquired. Planning to start her on combination of fulvestrant and everolimus. Tell us, what are the scenarios where we're using fulvestrant? How is it given? Is it an oral drug? Is it IV? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's a kind of similar mechanism to tamoxifen that we talked about. So it is similar that it is a it's selective for the estrogen receptor, but it actually degrades or, or it doesn't just bind, but it breaks down the estrogen receptor primarily used in metastatic disease. So that's kind of the, the main role. If this agent is usually in a postmenopausal woman in the metastatic setting, if you're using it in a, in a premenopausal woman, you want to make sure that she is a GnRH agonist on board as well. Can be used frontline, can be used in subsequent lines of treatment. It is IM, so not always patient-friendly. In terms of it is a gluteal injection. It is a very viscous solution. So it has to be pushed slowly. It can be very painful for patients because the way it's formulated is actually to get the total dose. It is two injections. So usually one in each gluteal muscle, and then you need to do this as a loading dose. So they get it every two weeks for a total of three times and then kind of spaced out to monthly from there. Makes a lot of sense why we're not reaching for that immediately. And particularly in women who are not in the metastatic setting that we might be reaching for it a little bit later line. So last question that I want to ask as we wrap up this episode, Everolimus can be a difficult drug to tolerate with high amounts of things like stomatitis and the Bolero 2 trial. Many patients, you know, it's hard to tolerate. It wasn't an easy drug to tolerate. Can you tell us about the role of something like a prophylactic dexamethasone mouthwash? There was a SWISH study, which we're going to link to our show notes, that looked at this. Just curious your thoughts on how you deal with stomatitis. If a patient does get stomatitis on everolimus, what are you doing? Are you holding the drug until it improves? How do you how do you deal with that scenario? Yeah, so it definitely can be a major adverse effect for patients. Great that we have a prophylactic option now. Dexamethasone you want to make sure that you're ordering the alcohol-free version. So you don't want the elixir here. You want the solution. This is typically, so it's available as 0.5 milligram per 5 ml oral solution. And you usually want patients to swish for about two minutes with this. So that's going to be, you have them do one, one milligram or 10 mls of the drug, swish for two minutes, and then spit it out. And they do need to do this four times a day. So that's the way they study in the swish trials. So it's something that they 
need to remember to do four times a day. You're trying to do it prophylactically to try to prevent this from happening. And another thing with it is you want to make sure that they're avoiding food, really any food or drinking within one hour after using this. So again, four times a day and you need that hour to avoid. So it's something from a patient perspective, they kind of have to work through the timing of all of this and when they're going to have their meals. So that's a great preventative option. And then in terms of treatment, usually at the point that it, it is grade two, so something patients are describing moderate pain, you know, a lot of irritation may not be necessarily interfering with their oral day intake, but they're having a lot of pain associated with it. It's usually the point where you're considering maybe a temporary hold, definitely a dose reduction. And then most certainly when you get to grade three, which would be more severe pain where patients are having um, difficulty with oral intake is, is definitely a point where you'd want to hold, allow for some recovery time and then do a dose reduction. I certainly have learned a ton today, and I really thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge and all the amazing counseling that you do for your patients. And as Yvick said earlier in the episode, I think all of us have walked away with pearls that we'll be mindful of as we're discussing these these agents with our patients in the future. Danielle, any final thoughts that you have for our listeners or for us? Yeah, I'll just... I'll just add, we talked a little bit about our CERD agent with fulvestrant. So we have a brand new CERD on the market. So an oral CERD, so elicestrin. So you would be able to avoid all that painful injections we were talking about. And it's specifically for patients with an ESR1 mutation. So this particular patient, I think, would be a potential great candidate for that option. Great to know. We will also have to put a a link to that in our show notes, just so that our listeners are on the cutting edge of everything coming out with, with breast cancer research for sure. So thank you for that. All right, guys, any final thoughts that you all have? No, I think that was a great discussion. I really appreciate you coming on and and joining us today. Thanks so much again. I, I love our pharmacy episodes. Always learn a lot of really interesting things that we don't always think about and always just good to get a different perspective on all this. All right, guys. Well, That's it for today. We'll see you all later. See you later. Peace.